Hello and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. This is Elle Rochford, amateur baker, professional sociologist. And I'm Andrew Shriver. I'm a public defender in Northeast Ohio. And this week we are talking to... Mallory Reese. She's a grad student at UCLA uh, and we're talking about how you can have it all. Exactly. We are talking about her recent article, although recent in academic terms. I feel like anything this decade feels recent to me. But this is her article published in Social Problems, and it's called Selling the Ability to Have It All, How Direct Selling Organizations Exploit Intensive Mothering Ideologies. So in layman's term, and she probably wouldn't use the word pyramid scheme, but direct selling organizations often kind of fall into that pyramid mm. category. Yeah, you're talking like Amway and, and things like that, right? Yeah, even even things like Avon and Mary Kay, they do start to take kind of a mm. pyramid-y shape, right? right. <laughs> so, so direct selling is kind of the less loaded term because um, pyramid schemes and MLMs or multi-level marketing has taken on this in, intense stigma. Uh, mm-hmm. So what we talk to uh, Mallory about is how women sign up for this and sign on to these knowing about the stigma. And we, we have some like really fascinating conversations about how even office jobs are really exploitative. And so when mothers are up against the choice between one exploitive work environment and another and one lets them be at home, mm-hmm. right, one of those options becomes more attractive. So on theme with uh, direct selling organizations, do you want to talk a little bit about what you made this week? Yeah, so it was a a gift you had got me actually during the uh, sort of pandemic winter or the first pandemic winter, depending on, I guess, how you want to phrase it. We had watched this sort of glass blowing competition reality show and I said, oh, that sounds really interesting. What if uh, when this is all over, you know, we got into blowing glass and I think for Christmas or for Valentine's Day? Valentine's, Valentine's Day, Day, yeah. You got me uh, this little kit where you can make your own, you know, it comes with little isomalts and stuff that you can melt down in like a little blow tube. So you can make your own sugar bulbs yeah, and like sugar, sugar art sculptures. and things. Yeah. So I had looked at, I had I'd gotten down the rabbit hole because again, this was like the February of, of. Yeah, February 2021. Yeah. Glass blowers, who was actually featured on this show we had watched, said, you know, during the pandemic, all these people binge watched the competition and they all want to get into glass blowing, but it's all shut down. But mm. there is an alternative that's, you know, similar techniques, but you can do it at home and it's doing sugar work. So melted sugar is pretty similar to the way you would work with glass. So it's a great way for beginners to get involved in glass blowing without having all the startup costs. Yeah, so it took a little while longer for me to actually use it because this was maybe more of an ADHD uh, hyper-focus than an actual desire. As it turned out, so sorry about that. It was a lovely gift. I did have this amazing vision in February of uh, what? This year, of 2021. Of 2021. The only okay, one. Okay, all right. The You're most right. recent You're one. right. That like I would make these cakes and then Andrew would do his sugar work and we'd have this like beautiful like synergistic kind of thing going. Mm -hmm. So perhaps my expectations with this like loose bag of isomalts was a little high. It's also in a closed cabinet so I forget that it exists a lot to be fair. That's fair. (laughs) So what we decided to do. Yeah. Yeah we did finally break it out. 
this week um, for the sake of making for appropriately for this episode, I thought making a little uh, little pyramid, little sugar pyramid. Yeah. Um, very easy. Just melted some silver colored isomalt down, poured it in like kind of on a stencil, flattened that out, and um, got some more isomalt melted to kind of glue the joints together. And for you know for a first attempt, I think it went okay. It's a yeah. sort of jaggedy looking guy, but it excuse me, it's sort of a jaggedy looking guy, but it works. It's a beautiful color too, so it's like silver with like shimmer in it. And the wonderful thing about working with isomalts is they're incredibly forgiving compared to sugar. Um, so caramel burns really quickly and it doesn't always um, set clear. Uh, so if you get clear isomalt, that is gonna set clear. It might be cloudy, but it's not gonna get dark. And if it doesn't quite work out, you can crush it up and try again. And you're more likely to have a success than if you retried anything with sugar. Like sugar is just kind of finicky, I, mm. I think. I, there are people who do amazing things with sugar. Uh, the, the downside of isomalt is that it does not taste very good, uh, whereas caramel is delicious. That's fair. Uh. Um, so this was kind of our test run of it to just work with it for the first time. But the, the grand vision would be, right, to make this little pyramid and then put a pastry under it and then you like crack it like a creme brulee, mm -hmm. uh, which is very satisfying to break apart. Yeah. Um, so we did this a little bit thicker. This is our first time working with isomal. Yeah, it, it probably wouldn't break if you hit it with a spoon. It was way too thick. Um, but I think it's kind of appropriate for what we're talking about that, you know, we made this very pretty looking glittery structure that has no substance to it whatsoever and actually like could is hurt empty. you and tastes yeah it is empty and tastes very bad uh so i like that you spun this into something very thematic and mm -hmm. that's exactly what i had intended when i suggested this project <laughs> is all of that symbolism mm -hmm. so apologies to mallory for uh, not making i guess something very delicious and nice uh for your episode but uh, we did make one of the more on-brand things um, or like more thematic things for your episode. So hopefully that still counts. Well, check us out. Check our uh, beautiful pyramid out on Instagram at Proofing and Lies. Uh, check us out on Twitter at Proofing, capital L. Uh, and, you know, don't be shy to like, subscribe, and recommend us to friends. Uh, we are largely exclusively word of mouth uh mm -hmm. for our our growth uh so every little bit helps yeah thanks guys for listening uh please enjoy the interview and and like Elle said uh we'll see you on social media thanks hello and welcome back to proofing and lies we're here with mallory reese who is a phd candidate at ucla uh, and we're here to talk about her recent paper. Yeah, so um, my research broadly centers on all things gender and work. So this includes gender and harassment, um, motherhood biases. I'm really interested in post-feminism and how that relates to the workplace. Um, and that relates to some of these questions about having it all, which we're gonna be discussing today in the context of multi-level marketing organizations, which is um, my most recent paper. My work on LMS was my first project in graduate school and I found these organizations just a really rich site to explore a lot of these themes about um, gender and work. And um, yeah, I just, I remember feeling really interested, particularly in the way that women in this industry were branding themselves as having discovered a really unique opportunity to have it all, to be 
mom CEOs, mompreneurs, or all of the social media jargon that's really associated with these, um, this industry. But I'm realizing maybe I should back up first and explain what multi-level marketing organizations are for listeners who are less familiar. Yeah, I think, I think it is really part of the, almost the zeitgeist, right? Like MLMs are everywhere, but for people who, who maybe haven't heard of this, some background would be good. Yeah. So, um, MLMs are a subset of direct selling organizations, which is this really large, like $35 billion industry in the United States. And um, three quarters of the people who work for MLMs are women. You're urged not only to sell products and services from like essential oils to skincare to, um, you know, I think classic examples of MLMs are like Avon and Herbalife and Mary Kay. Um, but you're also recruiting and sponsoring family members and friends. And so the compensation plans are heavily weighted to reward people for their recruitment efforts. And that creates these big income differentials, obviously, between the small number of consultants who have these very large teams and um, the downlines, I guess, of their teams, the bulk of the people who are not making as much money. And so um, the company that I studied was Rodan and Fields, and that's a high-end skincare company. And one of the things that was interesting to me about this company is they were really one of the first who started moving the industry away from this home party model of doing business where um, a lot of women were hosting parties in their home and inviting people to see different types of products to um, this e-commerce or they, they call it social commerce form of business, which I think a lot of us see, and that is more in the zeitgeist now. Um, maybe on your social media accounts. And so there women are using their social media presence to try and sell products and message and recruit their friends and family to the business. Um, and, you know, this is really important as we'll talk about how this industry kind of, um, especially this company that I studied really heavily tries to recruit um, mothers and um, something about moving it to social commerce is that it's really unshackling people from any type of physical and time limitations with the work. So they can really lean into this messaging of work your business from the bleachers of your child's soccer game or um, potentially alongside your full-time job. It's just something that fits seamlessly into your life where you're just messaging someone or just posting pictures of you doing interesting things with your children on social media to kind of advertise your lifestyle and bring people into the business. Um, and then obviously these organizations are often associated with pyramid schemes, which kind of contributes to some of the stigma around the organizations. And that was also part of the puzzle for me, I guess, of why so many women are doing this work because Obviously, we can see from income disclosure statements from the company, and we don't have all the information on how much people of their own money they're putting into the companies. But as far as like the income disclosure, you know, you have a very low likelihood of being financially successful. And then given that there is kind of this stigma associated with pyramid schemes and that I could see and, you know, saw through the project that there also are, you know, some damaged relationships maybe and kind of aggressively pursuing family and friends to join you in business who may not be interested. It just seemed like there was a lot of cost to people. And so I was just curious, kind of this puzzle of why so many people are continuing to join these organizations. Yeah, I was so interested in your paper because I think in, in popular media, even there's been a number of kind of exposés, uh, documentaries, 
even like, uh, I think Schitt's Creek did an episode about beauty products. Um, Orange is the New Black had, had a Herbalife uh, kind of plot line. So it's around that these aren't doing well. So I guess what drives someone to join this kind of venture when it's so widely thought of as a scam? Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting. So, um, and, you know, these organizations have always kind of been tied to um, women's abilities to try and like reconcile work family tension through flexible work in the United States and kind of the prohibitively high cost of childcare in the United States. And, you know, I really saw um, through interviewing these women how these organizations really promise to empower women by providing this unique opportunity for women to have it all. And by also providing what seems like a more caring alternative to kind of the traditional bureaucratic firm or um, traditional full-time work that's really um, celebrating these women as mothers and caregivers and allowing them to work a business flexibly alongside um, their children. But, you know, I, I really found that these organizations were kind of exploiting women's investments and these kind of like, especially the company I studied, this white affluent heterosexual ideology that good mothers are taking individualized responsibility for raising their children and crafting their work family balance without kind of external support, you know, of their partners or the community or the state. And they're kind of like exploiting these ideals, both to like recruit and train consultants on how to grow a team, but also on really overcoming a lot of consultants resistance to doing work that's sometimes stigmatizing or to kind of like monetizing their own personal relationships. So what was really interesting, a lot of the, you know, from the conversations that I had with consultants, and then I also joined to have access to the trainings and to see how, um, these team leaders were training consultants into doing work that makes them kind of uncomfortable. And these trainings really heavily lean into targeting the guilt that like working mothers experience from work family conflict or that homemakers are experiencing from failing to earn additional income. And they're training consultants on kind of developing these stories that, um, you know, finding just doing an incredible amount of emotional labor <laughs> to try and generate a story of their why and kind of dealing into, you know, something, digging into something really emotionally resonant about what work family conflict means to them, what the guilt is that they've experienced as mothers, you know, I mean, there was one training that I observed that um, encouraged consultants to look at a photo of their children and tell them that they were not worth it every time they felt comfortable doing the job or reaching out to someone. And so obviously the subtext there is that like, you know, not doing these uncomfortable aspects of the job means you don't care enough about your children to kind of like earn the right to spend more time with them through the business. <laughs> so they're really trying to harness these emotions around people's desire to spend more time with their children and really like leaning into kind of these um, intensive mothering ideologies in the United States where this again is like these white affluent, you know, able-bodied parents and sociologists, you know, tend to associate intensive mothering ideologies with efforts to um, cultivate your children kind of for success in the capitalist economy or safeguard their status by taking them to 
extracurricular activities and enriching them and investing in your children in that way. And so while, you know, it's interesting because while these organizations are trying to offer a solution, they say, to work family tensions, they're actually kind of reinforcing these intensive mothering ideologies that contribute to the conflict by kind of saying, well, you're a bad mother if you're not doing all of, you know, in, investing in your MLM business to spend time with your children and doing all of these extra things to engage in kind of a child-centric lifestyle in a way. And then with the social media aspect, I saw a lot of their encouraging youth then while you're cultivating your children, take pictures of it, you know, <laughs> go do interesting things, post it on social media, and then use that to like kind of advertise your lifestyle and bring more people into your team to show um, how successful and great you're being through your MLM work. The success is obvious. You're with your kid at soccer practice, for example. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. Ooh. Oh my goodness. Sorry. The, the look at your child's photograph, if you feel like quitting is um, very intense. Yeah. Well, I also think it's so interesting because I think you see a lot of MLMs and this kind of rhetoric around like health and wellness stuff, right? The organization you're looking at sells like face, like not makeup, but like um, facial treatments, right? Right. It's like high-end skincare. So, and, and now I'm blanking, you know, they, there was this um, acne treatment that they became famous for these dermatologists, which I should know this, but um, it, it was kind of when a lot of these like millennial women who are in the company now or teenagers, I think it's maybe proactive, but I don't want to say the wrong thing that they were taking. And, you know, some of the, the women would say like, oh, we really used that when we were younger. And now these um, skincare treatments are all the anti-aging developed for, you know, the same generation of women as we've, um, our needs have changed. <laughs> so it was these very expensive bundles of skincare. It just seems like a lot of tensions and pressures, right? Like, uh, lots of anti-aging, but also you're a busy mom. Also, you shouldn't have any blemishes and you should mm -hmm. be working and really ambitious, but also don't leave your house. Don't leave your children. It just seems like a lot to live up to and not really a lot of space to leave the organization without feeling like you've failed on a number of different levels. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that I didn't touch as, you know, their space limitations with papers and I didn't touch as much on the beauty aspect, but yeah, there was also a lot of training on just, you know, buying like a selfie light for your phone to take really idealized, great pictures. And, you know, it, it's very interesting with social media. And I did this a couple of years ago. So, um, now I, I'm sure there could be even more interesting work on how more influencers are, you know, and moms who are influencers are working their MLM business even more so. But yeah, it, it certainly is a lot of emotional pressure and, you know, a lot of emotional conversations with, I think people too, you know, one of the interesting things about this MLM work for a lot of women is that you know, as I've already said, it's kind of this notion of having it all is really this like individualized capitalist notion that, you know, you should be as a mother able to do all of this by yourself, right? Like, you know, this is up to you to make it work. It's not about um, structural failings or, you know, just just not really analyzing the, the structural failings that contribute to 
the work family conflict or that they're experiencing, you know, and kind of one of the ironies of it though, is that in the fact that these women are doing this work, which is kind of stigmatizing. And a lot of people would tell emotional stories as well about friendships that had been damaged, you know, through the work or just things, friendships that had been strained because you're really encouraged and need to be successful to kind of pursue a really aggressive strategy. Don't take no for an answer and just keep reaching out, you know, assemble a dirt list of people who would buy dirt from you, you know, do just, it, it requires um, kind of an aggressive strain and kind of monetizing your personal relationships. And then that kind of ends up further isolating these women from community <laughs> when, you know, pursuing this individualized strategy, they're, they're doing it all on their own. And then, yeah, you are kind of further isolated, which is interesting. There's so much there. Sorry. Well, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to talk about, but it's also so personal because as, you know, a middle upper class white woman, I have a lot of friends and acquaintances and family who are part of these organizations and they're drawn in for all of the reasons you're describing. I guess I'm curious, and maybe this goes beyond the scope of your work, but where are the husbands in all this? I assume your participants are largely heterosexually married. Do they play a role in any of this? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that would be something I, I think other people have written more on maybe, you know, I, I think that there are other businesses where there is more of a role and it, it came up somewhat in my work, mostly in results of kind of, there are a lot of scripts provided by the organization. And I, I vividly remember there were some scripts on how to like get your husband on board was one of the things that was sold. And, you know, it, it was kind of something that at first I was like, oh, maybe this is a limitation of my work that this organization seems to appeal mostly to kind of um, more white affluent. And, you know, almost everyone in my sample was married. And then I was just thinking about how I, I kind of pushed it with my theorizing to think about how for this particular MLM, they are really, um, it may seem like targeting white heterosexual middle-class women appears to be a good business decision because they're preying on the anxieties around the cultural message of having it all. So it's kind of like reaffirming their investment in the white heteronuclear family model. That's kind of reproducing these women's oppression, I guess. And, you know, I, I think that especially like things like intensive mothering, you know, I, I was just something I talk about in the work as well is how um, this kind of this type of mothering that they're promoting as being necessary to be a good mother is kind of well out of reach for mothers who are more economically and racially marginalized and also kind of underestimates how non-white and low-income mothers conception of mothering may extend to like a broader set of objectives than just raising your child for success in the capitalist economy, such as, you know, protecting children from state violence or cultivating pride in your racial solidarity or just all these broader objectives and how also just other, you know, other mothers may employ more communal methods of child rearing. You know, I know Patricia Hill Collins talks about that in her work about um, other mothers and just, you know, maybe in queer communities, there's just a more communal, different way of thinking about raising children. But what ends up happening, I think, too, with that, that's so interesting with this MLM and preying on having it all is that obviously because these women 
are not likely to be financially successful, they often are depending on a male breadwinner family structure to support kind of the child-centric lifestyle that this MLM is espousing, which is, you know, maybe explains part of why, you know, I, I, they don't release demographic information on the consultants. The MLMs are very <laughs> guarded about what information that they release, but I did because I was doing this kind of ethnographic work alongside, it does seem like the MLM that I worked for, not only amongst the women that I interviewed, but the broader teams that I saw kind of reflected this type of demographic sample. I'm so interested in, uh, you talk about this in the paper a little bit, that you you went through all the trainings. And so I'm curious about what that was like and how much do they talk about the stigma around the, the business model? Yeah, so they do have scripts for, you know, what to say if someone asks if this is a pyramid scheme. And um, there's a lot of language, I guess, just training people how to respond to various concerns that obviously come up a lot. But I, I think most of the training, it does really have to deal with maybe not so much the the stigma with the everyday training, but with kind of overcoming your resistance to doing the work, I guess. So a lot of it is just trying to motivate people just in the face of an overwhelming amount of rejection, harshness, I guess, from people who might be angry at being reached out to, or just, you know, I I think it requires a lot of emotional labor. And then also just something else that was kind of an issue for these women, I think, even apart from the fact that they're encountering resistance or stigma is just the fact that sales is kind of not compatible with their gendered identities, you know? So even apart from the stigma, just the thought of being really aggressive and not taking no for an answer, being a salesperson was language that a lot of women weren't comfortable with. And so there was also training that was really facilitating how to rethink about the business to make this more compatible with um, their own gendered identities, such as reframing, oh, you're not selling something, you're sharing something, or you're offering an incredible gift to someone of the ability to spend more time with their children and to reconcile, you know, work family conflict. And so there was also just a lot of training of just trying to reframe people and their mindset of how to think about this work and be positive about it. But, you know, I, I think that something that I also saw with social media is that I think with the home party model of doing business before this kind of went online, that there was perhaps more comfort among women as far as their gendered identities were concerned, because there you're like hosting people to a party and you're kind of getting the guests are getting previous work has shown some type of benefit from, you know, sociability and being able to come and like eat and drink in a fun environment. And so maybe it's more reciprocal to then buy something in exchange for being hosted to this party and social media kind of lays the intentions bare. So I think a lot of women needed more training on how to, um, when you're not offering the party or you're not hosting, how to overcome 
a resistance to being really aggressive, you know, and being trying to recruit people via that platform. If it's not largely financially successful, how much of this is about kind of ideas that you should have a career conflicting with you should be a mother and this way, you know, you can feel um, like you're succeeding in both. So is it less about needing to make money and more about needing to feel like you have a, a lucrative career, if that makes sense? I think definitely for some people, you know, it, it's interesting uh, about a third of the people that I spoke with worked full-time uh, and about a third worked part-time and then um, a third were homemakers. And I think for, um, there was always a lot of messaging for the people who worked full-time that this is what's going to let you retire. You know, this is your, your ticket to breaking through the shackles of your current predicament where, um, you know, some of the trainings were often about how leaders, the really su successful less than 1% people who are doing these trainings who are like, oh, I felt like such a failure as a full-time worker. I never made it to the carpool line to pick up my kid. It was devastating. This saved me by preventing me from becoming the worst thing ever an unavailable mother, you know? But then for some of the homemakers, you're right, who are joining and maybe not um, earning a lot of income, they would really get a lot of value just from, you know, being in community, maybe with the women in the organization, like hearing the trainings is really inspirational. Like one woman would speak about how as she would listen to these trainings, they would, as she was doing dishes, she thought, oh, I'm not this isolated mom just doing dishes. I'm, you know, being really inspired by what I'm listening to. And I can tell my kids that mom got a paycheck today. And you know, the amount might not matter as much as just the symbolic factor, like you're saying of just, they're not used to hearing that. And look, I, I did this. So, so it's interesting to me, I guess my own assumptions were that these women were either part-time, part-time employed or um, homemakers. So it didn't occur to me that a significant portion are working full-time on top of, of this as well. Yeah. And, you know, the women who did speak um, about working full-time, they had the really painful stories too, that they would work on to try and recruit other people and how they're really working this business. Um, you know, someone who was an accountant, I remember is like, oh, I just know the, the end goal is I'm going to spend more time with my daughter at the end of this. And that's why, what I reach out and speak to other mothers about that. And that's my why, that's why I'm doing this. And then I think also the fact that it's on social media was appealing to them to reach out to other full-time people and say that you can work this in short bursts, you know, alongside your job while you're doing this. And, you know, this has kind of, it's really preying on, I think, a lot of, you know, the timeline that plagues working women as well for women who are working and the emotions behind that. I guess it just, it sounds unrewarding. I don't know. It's, it sounds like not a lot of people are getting what they really need from it, which kind of takes me back to the, the beginning where it's so widely known that this is a predatory practice. I guess, how do, do, do the people who participate just think that they'll be the exception or that this organization is the exception or that kind of MLMs don't deserve the bad rap that they've gotten? Yeah. So there definitely is a lot of 
um, boundary work <laughs> that would happen in these participants kind of defending their own participation, you know, so there was, there was often a lot of statements about how um, it was like an apples to oranges comparison to compare them to any other company and how they're a really high quality company, you know, they would often speak about how their leaders engaged in integrity beyond reproach or just how their company was different. But, you know, I think all MLMs have a high amount of attrition and that the turnover is just really high for how long, um, for year to year. And once again, we don't have amazing numbers, but the numbers that we do across MLM suggest that um, attrition is pretty high. And so I'm not sure if it's something that women may be drawn into, you know, I mean, I also had women who spoke to me who said, oh, I said it was a scam and I like didn't agree to do it for a while until one person said, and then I had my first child and I thought like, this is something I want to try <laughs> because I was really unhappy with the, the work-life balance that I had. And my, my friend was, had a similar story to me and it became appealing to me for the first time. And I know it would be interesting now to follow up with <laughs> if I, if I were continuing with this work, some of these people to see where there are, where they're at now and how they are thinking about things now, if they still work for the company or not, but yeah. Well, and I suppose as I'm, as I'm kind of critiquing MLMs, it's not as if other kinds of work are not exploitive also. I mean, I guess, especially some of the stories in your article, you know, a woman talks about, you know, my coworker took her lactation breaks and the office made fun of her, right? Uh, so it sounds like you can't really win. So you might as well be home not winning as opposed to at work not winning uh, or at the office not winning. Right. Right. And then because I think we do have this culture of intensive mothering in the United States and all these stories about how the worst thing possible is to be viewed as the unavailable mother. It's almost like a, a victory in a way to feel good about yourself doing the MLM work by just being able to show yourself as being a good mom. You know, like I said, with the, the social media depictions, I think a lot of women got pleasure out of posting this like idealized representation of their lives and being able to say like, oh, I'm always available for my children. And so, you know, that is another way, like the organization is really creating a way for women to feel like good mothers, I guess, if that makes sense. It, it definitely does. And it's really fascinating because again, like we're talking about eye cream and, and acne treatments, right? It, you wouldn't think that you would advertise that by showing like a toddler at the zoo. So it is really interesting that, you know, they talk about the high quality products, but it's not really about the products at all. Yeah. And that's a lot of, um, I, I think there's a quote in the article where someone is like, you know, it's the lifestyle that you're selling. And that's really what we are advertising when we are doing MLMs, you know, and a lot of women, there were a few who were like, oh, I got into the, the skincare, but you know, most of these women did not know much <laughs> about the products that they were selling. And it was always if a customer did ask a question like, ooh, go consult this YouTube tutorial by this nurse from the company, <laughs> or, you know, that they, um, the way to 
make money was trying to obviously recruit people into the business. And that was just about selling a lifestyle and a cultural ideal. I also wanted to touch on kind of going more towards the, the theory end. You talk a lot about gendered organizations and uh, Joan Acker, uh, who is uh, for our listeners, a, a feminist theorist, I would describe her as. Um, and mm-hmm. so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what that means, uh, what gendered organizations are. Yeah, so um, Joan Acker made an argument that organizations are not gender neutral sites, um, but that instead kind of the very definition of jobs and organizational hierarchies are gendered in a way that's reproducing male advantage. Um, And so she said, you know, the United States has this masculine model. And if I'm envisioning an alternative, um, a more like feminine organization is going to value caretaking um, as highly as economic production. And it's going to kind of dissolve the barriers between the public and private spheres. And so um, I think DSOs have really leaned into this idea of selling themselves as a feminine organization and even some other theorists who, um, I say DSO, that's direct selling organizations, but um, MLMs as well have really, you know, while I I think that there are critiques by other sociologists, you know, they've characterized them as maybe like a pre-feminist organization where they're kind of celebrating women's abilities and values, but not challenging kind of dominant social structures. Um, but they are saying, you know, they're, they're kind of allowing you to blend the public and private spheres and to blend like working home with policies that are serving women's needs, allowing them to like care for family and work at the same time. Um, you know, there's since been pushback by other theorists who've said that, you know, maybe a, a traditional bureaucratic firm, like in some ways, um, bureaucracy has been shown to help women because there are kind of clear organizational objectives, uh, you know, which leads less into kind of stereotype and bias in decision making. So um, there have been kind of critiques of Joan Acker's characterization of saying that a traditional bureaucratic firm that's is masculine and always harmful to women. And now it's just we think of gendered organizations as just a way to kind of see the way that gender and inequality are embedded in organizational structures and more of kind of a framework for um, critique. But one of the things I tried to show was just how these DSOs were trying to um, sell themselves. You know, I, I think even Avon Skin was like, we're the company for women <laughs> and how they've really leaned into this notion that they themselves are a feminine organization. And I tried to really then look at, you know, rather than arguing that they are masculine or feminine, I was examining using um, gendered organizations and the theory behind that to kind of examine how gender is being constructed or resisted through the culture, the policies and practices, um, consultants' gendered identities, which I've touched on and really see if they are alleviating or reproducing these gendered occupational inequalities. And while other people have tried to say that they are rewarding and tied to, you know, that women's motivations are tied to kind of these conceptions of MLMs as being feminine organizations, 
um, because they do value caretaking and you know allow women to care for children alongside the work that they're doing. I was kind of finding that they're using this veneer of femininity or being a pro-women organization that celebrates caregiving to kind of attract women workers. And then they're using this to pressure women to do this underpaid and emotionally manipulative labor. Well, and I'd be so curious because you collected these interviews well before the pandemic, correct? Mm-hmm. So I'd be so curious to see how some of this compares to when so many mothers became work from home employees. So they were in the home, they were working, they were doing childcare. And I think most of them, or at least many of them would say it was not great. It was not a great experience. So I wonder how that would compare to, to this sort of uh, MLM model. Yeah. And it is funny. I think that um, a lot of the women, when they were speaking about doing the business from their smartphones alongside taking care of their children are not um, fully speaking about how time shackled to a smartphone is not necessarily family time, you know, or high quality time, but you know, it would be interesting. I did see a a Vox article um, recently about how COVID has been a, a major selling point in the MLM industry and a new narrative to try and bring people in. So I haven't done work on that, but I think that that's very interesting. And then, yeah, like you said, when you're also trying to balance doing work while taking care of children, what that means and looks like and how people experience that is, (laughs) does not seem to be um, high. You know, it's interesting what the future of work will be and, you know, reconciling because I think there's a lot of tensions right now with um, women who are demanding kind of more flexibility in the wake of the pandemic, but also knowing that, you know, it feels impossible to work alongside of caring for your children meaningfully. Yeah, I feel like there's increasingly acknowledgement that we need more flexibility, but it's not being matched with flexible expectations. Uh, I know a lot of people at the beginning of the pandemic felt this way where, you know, people acknowledged that they were working from home and that children would be in the home. Uh, They were expected to have the same exact output, though, as if there was not a global pandemic. So I will be very interested to see if MLMs grow or shrink after this. Yeah, I will um, as well. I mean, from what I understand from the Vox article, it does seem like Originally, a lot of people were laid off and out of work. And so it was a good opportunity to advertise, be safe in your home and do this. But yeah, it it will be great to see um, if we can have a solution where work is more flexible, if this becomes, you know, something positive can come out of it, where it's less of an issue in the United States, because, you know, we have a lot of research showing that a lot of companies offer flexibility, but when women or mothers are using that that's really triggering a motherhood bias and so um, a lot of people feel like they can't use it because they're just going to be highly penalized as caregivers you know and so if um you know once especially once women have childcare again post-pandemic it'll be interesting if they you know if flexibility though becomes less stigmatized and that can create better work options for um, all types of caregivers. Yeah. Fingers, fingers crossed. It is, 
it has been a little disheartening watching the women's uh, kind of job and employment numbers during the pandemic. So I'm hoping there have been lessons learned and maybe some structural changes. I think my fear is that more people will go into this individualistic kind of side hustle culture uh, versus pushing for more accommodations at work. But that's my fear as well. <laughs> yeah, rather than meaningfully advocating for structural systemic change, it's just more of kind of this neoliberal discourse of, you know, figure it out yourself through your own own solutions. It feels very much like the sort of traditional uh, women's version of like pull yourself up by your bootstrap, like uh, kind of men's survivalist culture in a weird like kind of inversion way. Don't know what to do with that, but it is, you know, it feels grim. I don't know if that's a fair characterization. Yeah, I would agree. You know, it, it feels like there are, like I said, I, I try and think um, somewhat optimistically. I'm like, maybe this is, <laughs> the, there are some things on the pandemic that are like, here are the great things that can come out of this, but then it's hard not to, you know, so many negative, we've just seen the negative ramifications on um, women in the workforce in, in front of us. So it's hard not to have a more grim <laughs> outlook. Well, I suppose if you are um, a man listening to the podcast, you should take advantage of your FMLA and all the leave policy and do more childcare to avoid women dropping out of the workforce and uh, joining MLMs. I think that's, that's my takeaway. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts? Uh, I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, and I want to make sure people can find your work. Uh, if you want to plug any pluggables. Yeah. And um, so this most recent article was um, in Social Problems. Um, if you want to read the article that we've been talking about. My more recent work has been on um, harassment. I um, also had a recent article come out in the annual review of sociology on gender power and harassment in the Me Too era that I um, co-authored with my advisor, Abigail Segui. And so that um, is focusing on just social, sociological literature on harassment and trying to give an overview of that. Um, and yeah, it was a pleasure to um, speak with you today about this interesting topic. Thank you so much. Uh, we are really excited to share your work. Uh, people should check out the article. Yeah, I'm excited where we are talking about doing a, a fancy sugar work piece for this. So I'm excited to see how that turns out. Uh, you will have heard as the audience at the top of the episode how well it turned out or didn't. So be sure I'm to, very excited to hear about the baked good. I made pumpkin bread this week in anticipation of I, I was just in a baking spirit knowing that I was coming on. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to hear that. No, uh, I, I love uh, I love getting other people to get in the baking spirit. I feel like it's the perfect time of year for it, too. So hopefully some of the listeners will also. Uh, preheat their ovens. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's still like in the nineties in Southern California, oh. which is where I am, but I'm pretending that <laughs> turning on your ovens is acceptable. And that it's dreaming of days. Well, thanks so much.